Well, it's great to see you here today. Thanks for taking the time to be in at least one of the best places I think you could be in today. There's a lot of great churches all over the Triangle area that you could have chosen to be in, but to be in church and to worship the God of the universe certainly was a good choice, I think, to make today. So thanks for, thanks for doing that. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. You know, in a world where the population has now exceeded actually 7.1 billion people, it's easy for us to underestimate and overlook the influence of one person, is it not? In fact, have you ever been intimidated or discouraged or depressed when you look around and you see all of the incredibly gifted and talented people that are in the world? Now, sometimes I've had just the opposite effect, too. I've looked at some other people and gone, hey, I ain't so bad. I mean, when I see that, you know, you've had those feelings, too. But have you ever been intimidated when you look around and you see people and you go, wow, man, they're so gifted, they're so talented. And then you look at yourself and you say to yourself, self, I really don't matter. I'm one person, and what I do or what I don't do actually, at the end of the day, doesn't really matter. Have you ever looked at an incredible musician as they sing a song or as they play an instrument and thought, wow, why can't I play like that? David Loftus is going to come sing in a few minutes from now, and I've done that for years with him. Just going, that's awesome. I mean, that's incredible. I've told him, man, if I go to be with Jesus before you do, I just want you to sing at my funeral. Sing something really pretty. You know, just because just, he's got such an incredible voice. And I, I see these musicians up here with instruments, and I'm just amazed. William so often on the violin, and I listen to Bill just kind of looking around and playing on these keys, and I'm just going, that's awesome. I wish I, could, I wish I could do that. You ever watched a sporting event and thought that? I think that often. I remember Monday night I was watching the, uh, the NCAA final a game there, and I watched Tim Hardaway Jr. Did you see that dunk? where he just kind of went through the sky, reminiscent of Michael Jordan. And I thought, God, just let me do that just one time in my life. In fact, when I get to heaven, people talk about they're going to go sit down with Paul. They're going to go, I'm going to see if I can then do that. And I'm going to find the first heavenly golden basketball courts, and that's what I'm going to try to do. Or how about Hussein Bolt? Remember him in the Olympics? I look at him and go, that's awesome. Sometimes I'm on the treadmill and I think, if I had a mirror, do I look like no, he's taken his shirt off after he's raced, and I assure you I don't look like that. And then how about Michael Phelps? 18 gold medals. And you think to yourself, uh, I could never be like that. I am just one person, and I am not gifted, and I'm not talented like that. And, and what I do or what I don't do will never, ever make a difference in this world. Edward Everett Hale said it this way, I'm only one, but still I am one. He said, I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do something that I can do. I like that. I really pray that that will mark my life, that when I come to the end, even if it were to be today, that I could say, I might not have been able to do everything, but I could do something, and what I could do, I did. You know, there's nobody that's exactly like you. You're the only person on the planet with your story, with your family, with your life circumstances. You're the only one with your voice, with your quirky personality, with your style, with your sensitivity, with your passion, your exact conviction, your circle of influence. Each of us is incredibly unique and we can make a difference. 
Here's what I want to start out to you before we jump into the book of Esther 4 this morning. I want to start out by making sure that you understand that every moment of every day is a moment for us to do or to be what we were created to do or be. I want to tell you also that you were not created for a moment. You were created for every moment. I remember a football player just a couple football seasons ago, after an incredible game, he, he had a microphone stuck in his face, and as a 19, 20-year-old, probably didn't know exactly what to say, and so he said, I was created for this moment. Ultimately, nothing else in my life matters. And I'm thinking, yeah, I probably said that at 19 or 20. Nothing in my life matters. I was created for this moment. And I thought, oh man, you're, that is so untrue. You were created for so much more than that. We make decisions each day for our lives to matter or to count or to simply be marked by nothing other than mediocrity. And if the story of Esther, if the book of Esther teaches us anything, it teaches us that one person can make a difference. And most of the time, that person will not be an extraordinary person. And I'm grateful for that. Most of the times, it won't be a person who you just go, wow, that's incredible. Most of the time, it's going to be a person like me or it's going to be a person like you. But God will accomplish his perfect plan, but he will do it, as the title of our series says, through imperfect people. That's how God will do it. Now, if you're new here this morning to Northwest or if you haven't been here in a few weeks, I want to catch you up on where we are in the book of Esther. We're going to do that on a regular basis just so you're not caught up where we are at a particular moment, but you get the whole context. There's a king, and his name is Xerxes. You probably will notice in your Bible that it's uh, quoted there as Ahasuerus. We like to use his Greek name, Xerxes. As Matt says, it's a lot easier for us to say that, so we'll choose to do that. He rules over a kingdom. It's called Persia. He's the most power, influential man on earth in his day. He sits on his throne, and he likes to sit on his throne. But when he sits on his throne, he doesn't always behave. In fact, he rarely behaves. A lot of times we saw in Esther chapter 1, when he's sitting on his throne, he's actually drunk. In fact, he gets so drunk and he gets so upset one particular day when he's sitting on his throne that he asks his wife to come and parade before he and his other little friends that are there, drunken minions. She refuses to do it, and so he divorces her. Sounds like a wise decision, doesn't it? And then some four years later, he comes back from a battle after getting his royal behind spanked by the Greeks. He comes back from a battle and he says to himself, Self, where's my wife? Where's my queen? Only to realize, only to recognize that he got rid of her. He divorced her. And now he's a lonely man. He's a humiliated man after coming back from battle where he had lost. He's lost his soulmate. And there is no eHarmony. There is no Match.com. And so what he does is he holds an enormous competition and hundreds of women are in it. And they are given a year of spa treatments to make them beautiful, to make them desirable for him. And he spends time with them. He's a really incredibly horrible, sick individual. He's not a man you want to be married to. He's not a man that you want to be the king of your land. But nonetheless, he is. And one of the young women in that competition is to become the queen of Persia. And her name is Esther. She was of Jewish descent. Talk about an ordinary person, a person that nobody knew, nobody cared to know, nobody would have ever known she would have ever existed on the planet, short of God was going to use an ordinary person to do an extraordinary thing. Her name was Esther. She was an orphan girl. Her parents had died when she was very young, and as a result of that, one of her older cousins, Mordecai, served like a father figure in her life. Now, Mordecai, when we first meet him, and up until today, when we find him in chapter 4, Mordecai, I believe his life is described as cowardly at best. 
Nobody knows that he's Jewish. He doesn't go around parading that fact. He doesn't tell people that he's part of God's people. He works for a pagan king, and when it comes time to hand off his adoptive daughter to go into the beauty pageant of the king, to go in and actually to sleep with the king and to see if he finds her desirable, he does like any good father would do. He gives his daughter to the king. No, no good father would do that. He's a twisted, messed up man as well. We don't know at, that, at this particular moment what his relationship is with God, but we know when he chooses to give his adopted daughter over to this nasty old king, he certainly commits a horrible sin. What he does do, however, is he decides that he is going to die on a particular hill, and that is the hill where he has to bow to a ruler whose name is Haman. Matt talked about him last week. So there's Xerxes, and then he has a right-hand man, and that man's name is Haman. And Haman's an egomaniac. I think that describes it probably just about that much. He loves himself. He loves the power that he's been given. He does all of the things that are necessary in order for his boss to like him. Anybody know anybody like that in the place where you work? And you're sitting around looking around going, yeah, right. And the boss is buying into it. And Xerxes bought into it. And that's the way Haman lives his life. He lives for glory and public recognition. And the decree is made from the king that everybody is to bow down to Haman. And Haman likes this, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you like it if you came home at night and all the kids just went, Oh, great father, oh, great mother, thank you for coming home. I said this morning to our worship team, and one of them went right away, Yeah, I think I'd like that. I think I'd actually enjoy that. I think I would. I think I'd like that. It was an official recognition of his power and of his authority. It's kind of like a curtsy in the British Empire or bowing in an Asian culture or or saluting in the military context. Everybody bows down to Haman except one guy, and that one guy is Mordecai, and he won't bow. So you have these enormous events that Haman holds, and all of the people come in and they bow down to Haman as if recognizing and worshiping him as the great guy that he is. And it's a bit obvious that there's one guy that refuses to do it. In fact, we can only speculate that every time he catches the eye of Haman, he kind of looks at him and goes, I'm not bowing. He doesn't do it. And time and time again, this happens. And we don't know exactly why he doesn't bow. We can only speculate that as we look back in Jewish history, based on the fact that Mordecai was a Jew and that Haman was an Agite, that there's a possibility that it was just that frustration of he had elevated to a position. And based on our past, it was kind of like the Hatfields and McCoys. There is always going to be this problem. Some Bible scholars speculate that maybe it was just as simple as Mordecai was upset because Haman had been lifted up to a position of honor and glory. And yet when Mordecai had saved the king's life by exposing the plot to destroy him, he was not rewarded at all. We don't, we don't know exactly what happened. But we do know that Mordecai keeps doing this time and time again. He doesn't bow. And so Haman comes up with a plan that he's going to have him killed along with all of the others in the Jewish race. This was what we would refer to as an ancient holocaust. He goes to King Xerxes and he tells him that there's a certain group of people. Look there in your text in chapter 3 and you'll notice that. He says it's a certain group of people. He doesn't say it's the Jewish people. He just says it's a certain group of people and they have their own laws and they have their own way of doing things and they don't obey the laws of the land. And he proposed that all of these people be killed And that as a result of killing them, the inference is that after we plunder their land, after we plunder and we take all the things that they've possessed, he promised the king that he would give him approximately 375 tons of gold that would be added to the king's treasury. 
That would be an important thing because you remember just a few years earlier, he had been defeated, he had come back, uh, his war chest evidently was, was depleted, and this was a good thing to, to King Xerxes. Now, you would think that King Xerxes would ask the question, who are these people, right? A logical question to ask if you're going to go out and obliterate a whole group of people. But King Xerxes, the only thing he hears is that these people don't obey the laws of the land. They're disrespecting me. And so he simply gave his signet ring. He takes the ring off. He gives it to Haman. And when he gave Haman that ring, you need to understand, it was as if he gave him all the power of the kingdom. He gave him that ring, and as a result of that, the law was made that all these people would be destroyed, that they would be killed. The deal was made. Historians will tell you that at this point in the Jewish nation, that meant that they were going to literally wipe off the face of the earth approximately 15 million people. This is a big deal. And so you would have to say that the punishment doesn't fit the crime, right? Here's one man who decides that he's not going to bow down, and so 15 million people die. Haman's basically becoming the Hitler of his day. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. This is a, a public mourning, a public weeping. The decree is sent out. The death sentence has been issued. It's been put into effect. The date has been set and Mordecai realizes he is powerless but he's going to protest. He's going to publicly identify himself with the people of God, which is interesting because he hasn't done that up until this point. Verse 3 tells us that it wasn't just Mordecai, by the way, who was mourning. It was happening in every Jewish province where they resided. Now let's stop for a moment, and I want you to understand this response to this tragedy. When people in this culture, in the Middle Eastern culture, when they would bury a family member, when they would contract a disease when they would suffer some type of financial loss or some other disaster in their family or town, they would wear very loose-fitting, dark clothing, coarse garments that literally were made out of goat's hair. And they would put those on and they would hang them over themselves, much like a large gunny sack. I'm sure some of you have worn those from time to time, right? They would wear these and they would then, on top of that, they would take the ashes from the remains of a fire that had recently been put out, cooled down, no doubt, and they would take those ashes and they would throw them on themselves and they'd be covered up in this ash with this goat hair on them and they would appear very ghostly. Some scholars have commented that sometimes they would even sit in a pile of ashes and they would just keep over and over again just heaping piles of ashes on their head. You think the pollen is bad, those of you that have allergies. Remember having to mourn and grieve like that. What if you were part of the Middle Eastern culture and in order to mourn you had to do that? Now, I don't think we grieve well in our culture. Do you? I don't think we grieve well at our. In fact, I especially think that's true of the male gender. (laughs) We don't grieve well at our. We have a tendency to keep it inside. Now, Eastern culture lets it all out. We see it on TV, don't we? Remember, as you see on TV, as you see a life that's been taken in the Middle East and conflict there, what do they have a tendency to do? They parade the body through the streets, and they're mourning, and they're screaming, and they're yelling, and they're getting their grief out. I would say this to you. We need to express our grief, our sorrow, with a little more emotion, probably. And I speak, again, mainly to us men. 
we need to be willing to express and to expose our grief and our sorrow with our circle of friends. That's why we challenge you on a regular basis that you ought to be involved in a life group. You ought to live life with others because those are the people when you do have times of grief, when you do have times of mourning, those are going to be the people that are going to come alongside of you. They are going to rejoice when you rejoice. And there are going to be times when you're going to want somebody to celebrate with. And that's what a life group is. There are going to be times when you just need people to simply come alongside of you and to grieve with you. And I think that that's what happens when we do life with other people and we live life with other people. Now, I think that chapter 4 in our study is somewhat of a turning point in the story. Up until this point, we see nothing that would cause us to think that Mordecai or Esther's are actually followers of Jehovah God. And in fact, up to this point in the story, he's only privately counted among God's people. He's going in this particular chapter, right at the beginning of chapter 4, from, from a silent person to a speaking person. He's going from a passive sense to an active sense. We're seeing him come out with his faith. And we don't know up until this point where he's been in his relationship with God. We know he's far away from Jerusalem. We don't ever see him praying. We don't ever see him reading any scripture. We don't ever see him offering sacrifice for his sins. We see him giving no tithes and offerings. So if he's walking with God, he's certainly doing it in a very passive way. He comes off as a very cowardly, timid man who worships the God of convenience and comfort. And we have a tendency as we read things like that to go, shame on him. He should be much more than that. He's part of the people of God. And yet I would say to you, and I have said to myself this week as I've studied, does that not so often mark my life? That I live at the very best a lukewarm Christian life. That I will lift my hands and I will give praise to God when I am amongst his people in a place where it is okay to do that. But then I will go out of this place and tomorrow I'll go into my school or I'll go into my workplace or I'll go into my neighborhood and people will be confused as to really whether or not I am a follower of Jesus. Let's never be so hard on Bible characters because so often they represent us. But it sounds like Mordecai is changing and this encourages me not only for Mordecai, but it encourages me for myself that there's always hope for us to change. And so something changes in Mordecai's life. He's a broken man. And let me remind you, if you know this, and tell you if you don't know, that that's always where change begins. You recognize that? Change begins with brokenness. Now, I don't know what brokenness looks like for you. I have counseled and been with a lot of people over the years, and I've seen brokenness take on many different forms. I've, I've never seen somebody put goat hair over their back and throw hashes upon themselves, but I've seen people grieve, and I've seen people mourn, and I've seen people be broken over where they are in life. But the only way for change to begin in your life is for you to be broken. And, and I would say for some of us, that is our greatest need today. It is not simply to come and to hear one more chapter out of the book of the Bible expounded. It's not to hear one more lesson. It's not to to grasp just a little more knowledge of the Word of God or of God himself other than the fact of understanding who God is and who I am before a holy God and to be broken before him so that change begins. In fact, that's the very definition of repentance, being broken and then moving in a new direction, stopping the excuses. 
I am amazed on a regular basis at how prone we are as human beings to make excuses. Are we not? We make excuses for everything of why we are the way we are. I have met with men who tell me why they're pathetic fathers because they grew up in a home with a pathetic father and they never had a role of a father. And I grieve for that with you. But let me tell you, at some point you have to be broken. At some point you have to repent and you have to decide I'm going to move in a new direction. You have to stop and and refuse to believe the lies of Satan when he tells you you're too messed up and nothing could ever change. Or, by the way, I think vice versa as well, where he tells you you're okay, you don't need to change. We talk on a regular basis about people that are in here who I have looked back at my notes and in the past several months I've said time and time again, you are not too messed up. God can do something incredible in your life. You're not too far gone. I don't care how old you are. I don't care the decisions that you have made. But let me tell you this, I have become convinced as well that sometimes it's not just the people who think I'm too messed up. Some of us think we're just okay. Quite frankly, we're not. If you evaluate your life and you evaluate it honestly, I've tried to do this week as I've looked at this chapter and immediately look and see the hypocrisy of Mordecai and of Esther. And I think to myself, God, is that true in my life? And how true it can be of a pastor to stand up week after week after week, and tell other people what they should do, and yet be blinded themselves because they believe that they're really not that bad. They're really not that messed up. Let me tell you, just in case there was any doubt, you are a messed up people who sit and listen to a messed up pastor. So whether you realize that today or not, you are. You need to acknowledge that you're messed up, and you need to trust in God's grace and his mercy to move you to a new place. Now, Mordecai could spend the rest of his life, as brief as it might be, given the edict that has just been passed, saying, as one teacher said this, I haven't walked with God. My dad didn't walk with God. My granddad didn't walk with God. We said we were believers. We're all hypocrites. I didn't get married. I don't have kids. I'm a total coward. I raised one girl that I got to adopt, and I handed her off to a guy who thinks he's God and is a totally nasty pervert. And now 15 million people are going to die because I'm an arrogant, stubborn man. That's what he could do. But rather than that, he decides to change. And I love that. He decides not to make excuses. He decides not to buy into the lies of Satan that he's too messed up or not messed up. He just decides to change. I love that. Now, what about Esther? What's she doing during all this time? She's been the queen for about five years, and no doubt she's lost regular contact with her older cousin, Mordecai. Look in verse 4. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Esther doesn't seem to know what's going on, and so her immediate reaction is simply to clothe this man, to put some new clothes on him. I can only speculate that maybe she really didn't know what was going on because she was certainly blinded and kept from those things that were happening outside of the palace walls. Maybe she did know what was going on, but she thought, Mordecai, he's my adopted father. He's my older cousin. I want to do everything I can to save him. He's got to take that stuff off. I mean, you walk around in goat hair, you're kind of exposing yourself, right? Because not everybody's walking around in goat hair, I don't think. And so she sends him this clothing as if to, to get himself cleaned up, and then let's sit down and talk about it. But in the meantime, don't make such a scene. 
I think it's probable that she was so isolated she really didn't know what was going on. Whatever her reason for sending the new suit to Mordecai, he refuses to put it on. Look at verse 5. Then Esther summoned Hathak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Verse 7. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Esther sends her trusted eunuch. She trusts him. No doubt, Bible scholars say that he knew that she was of Jewish background. She sends him out to talk to Mordecai and find out the whole story of what was happening. Mordecai tells the whole story to Hathak and even sent proof back to him by giving him a copy of the edict to take back to Esther so she could read it for herself. It's interesting, if you look at the end of verse 8, that he orders her, look at that, he orders her to go to the king. He orders her. He tells her, this is what you got to do. And you need to get your little royal backside into the king, and he needs to understand this is going on. Look at verse 10. Here's how Esther responds. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who's not summoned, he has but one law that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I've not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. Esther basically says, look, I can't, just, I can't just waltz in to the king. He has to request that I come to see him or I could be put to death. And hey, let me just tell you this, the guy's my husband, and I haven't even seen him for 30 days. Wives, does that sound familiar? So you're going, my husband works so much that I feel like I've seen him in 30 days. Others of you maybe are saying, wish that was true of me. Whatever the case may be, Esther is basically saying, I want to do something, but it's dangerous. It's risky. Now, before you judge Esther too harshly, let's understand the circumstances here. There was an ancient archaeological dig. I, I found this interesting this week in my study. It was an ancient archaeological dig that showed this ancient picture and in the picture, it showed the Persian king sitting on his throne, and right next to him, standing right next to him, was a tall, masculine, burly soldier with an axe in his hand. Scholars speculate probably, you know, like what the Grim Reaper would wear with a black hood over his head. And he stood there next to the king as the king sat on the throne, just waiting for somebody to come before the king, where the king goes, I don't really want to look at you today. And then they would literally chop the heads off of those people. Can you imagine that? You walk in and say, hey, can I just talk to you for a moment? Mm, don't think so. And the next thing you know, you're with Jesus. Imagine that. And we know that the king from chapter 1, we know that he has a habit of what? He has a habit of being drunk on the throne. <laughs> that makes things even worse. Remember the last episode that Esther had and that the, the last queen had with her husband when he was drunk sitting on the throne. He divorced her. She kept her head, but he divorced her. Unless he holds out that golden scepter, you lose your head. This is a life-changing decision, literally. For many of us, we talk about life-changing decisions, and they are rarely 
really literally life-changing decisions. This is a life-changing decision. This is whether you live or whether you die. But you and I do the same thing. We find ourselves in situations where we know we need to speak out against something or for something, and yet we remain silent. And we do it for a variety of different reasons. We do it in the workplace because we think if we, if we say something, we might lose our job. We do it in relationships with friendships. We don't say what needs to be said so many times because we think if I do that, if I say that, this person might not be my friend anymore. What will people think about me? We don't say what needs to be said to our neighbors. We don't even care enough to go next door and invite a neighbor to come and to church with us and to hear the life-changing message of the gospel. What will they think about me? They might think I'm a religious fanatic. Unless we leave out middle school, high school kids. We do that at school, right? Right? We do that. We find ourselves in situations where we go, I don't really want to say about that. You know, guys sitting in the locker room with the football players and something said, and they go, I know I need to say something, but if I say it, what will they think about me? How will they feel about me? And so we do nothing. Every moment of every day, we are confronted with opportunities to speak for what is right. And most of the time, it doesn't involve losing our head. In fact, I would say to you, I've never been in a situation where I knew if I chose to do the right thing, Somebody was going to take an axe and chop my head off. 47 years. Never happened to me. I've never been in that situation. And so let's be careful we don't label Esther as a coward too quickly when many of us at times should probably wear that name tag proudly. Faith involves risk. Anytime we're going to do something or be something as an individual for the cause of Jesus Christ, to have influence, to make an impact in our world for Jesus Christ, it is going to involve risk. It's not going to be comfortable. Look at verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. Some see this statement as a thinly veiled threat. Something like, let me remind you, young lady, who you are. Let me remind you that you are also a Jew, and if we die, you're going to die. I think that's interesting that he would offer it as a threat, because if he offers it as a threat, chances are he's going to be dead long before she's going to be dead, and he's the one that knows that she's a Jew, so take that for whatever it's worth. Verse 14, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and your father's house will perish. And Who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. You know, this is the first time in the book of Esther where we read what appears to be a possible reference to God. If you remain silent, relief and deliverance will come, but they will come from another place. There are some Bible scholars that refer to that term another place and say that in the original language that was oftentimes used to refer to God as he was a place, a place of refuge, a place of comfort, a place of deliverance. What an incredible reminder, though, Mordecai's words are to us. If you won't obey God and let him use you, then he's going to find someone else to do it. You ever thought about that? God ever prompted you to do something and you thought, no, way, I'm not taking that risk. I'm not doing that. I'm just not going to do that. I'm not going to be in that kind of discomfort. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Picture from now on, every time you do that, God sometimes saying to you, okay, but I'm going to find somebody to do it. Somebody is going to give me glory by doing that. Somebody one day is going to stand before me 
And they're going to get a reward for doing what I asked them to do, for stepping out, for stepping out in faith and risking. You don't want to do it? That's okay. You see, God accomplishes his purposes through people, but God will accomplish his purposes even if his people refuse to obey. Let me tell you that that's true. And by the way, that is not just true for us as individuals. That's true for people collectively as well. Let me say this to you right now. God wants this community to be impacted with the gospel that he left you and I to distribute if you're a Christ follower here this morning. There is no doubt in my mind. Matt and I don't sit down and go, well, you think God really wants those people to come to Christ? I mean, does he really love them? Does he really care about them? We don't sit down and have those discussions. We are very, very much convinced that God loves this world. He loves people. He created people. He sent his one and only son to die for people. And God does want these people to know and understand the gospel. You say, well, you don't understand how difficult it is. I live in a neighborhood and and 95% of them are Indian and they're not receptive to the gospel at all. Let me tell you that God can penetrate those hearts. Amen, Tomsey? Are you here? Right? Yeah, he can, can he, Tomsey? Indian people are coming to know Jesus all over this globe. They can come to know Jesus in Northwest Cary. You say to me, well, you don't understand. All they're concerned about is their jobs and their beach houses. Let me tell you, people all over the globe are coming to faith in Christ. God is going to do something in this community. He will either use us as individuals, he will use us as Northwest Community Church, or he will find somebody else to do it. But he will do it. Make no mistake, he will do it. God's not in a hurry. He does things on his timetable, but he will accomplish those things that are his purpose. Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go and assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I'll go into the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Let's bring it to a close. Esther makes a decision which will be the defining moment of her life. And as we complete our study in the book of Esther, you're going to find it to be true. She asked Mordecai and the Jews to fast. She would do the same with her life group. It's there. It's in the original text if you read it there. Her accountability group, you could also define it that way. Her small group, her group of friends, her friends also that love Jesus. There's a variety of different interpretations of of the ancient text there. And then notice at the end of verse 16, she says, If I perish, I perish. You see, she finally got it. And that's where all of us have to come to as well. She finally decided that what was the most important thing to her was not her life. Now think about it for just a moment. Is that not the most important thing to you? Your life. Some days you may think it's your house, you may think it's your job, you may think it's your car, you may think it's your... But ultimately, it is your life. Here's what Esther is saying. My greatest treasure is my life, but my greatest treasure is no longer my greatest treasure. My greatest treasure is God, and I'm willing to lose my life because they can't take from me my greatest treasure, which is God. See, if your life is your greatest treasure, one preacher said it this way, all people have to do is threaten you to control you. If your life is your greatest treasure, all they have to do is say, I will take your life or I will make your life very hard and they will control you. 
If your reputation is your greatest treasure, your little world that you live in, when you go to school, high school kids, middle school kids, tomorrow morning, you will be controlled by people because it'll be all about your reputation. But if you say, my greatest treasure is my relationship with Jesus, then you cannot be controlled by anything other than him. You see, once the God of the Bible becomes your greatest treasure, people can't threaten, they can't intimidate, they cannot manipulate you. Things don't matter anymore. You're free. And that's where Esther gets to. She says, if I live, I live. If I die, I die. I just want to do what's right. And that's when, by the way, our testimony becomes the same as what Paul wrote in Philippians 3.8. Many of you are familiar with this text where Paul said, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. He wrote earlier in the first chapter of his letter to the church at Philippi, in chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is what? It's Christ. To die? That's gain. He got it. His life was no longer his most important treasure, and that's where Esther is. And that's where any one of us has to be if we're going to be a difference maker. Our greatest treasure has to be Jesus. That is the greatest problem with our American evangelical culture right now. We say God is our greatest treasure, but he is not our greatest treasure. Our houses are, our jobs are, our bank accounts are, our kids are, our sports are. There are lots of different things that have become our greatest treasure. And if he's not our greatest treasure, we will never be true difference makers. Jesus has to be number one. Not anything else, not anyone else. Let me give you these three things as we close. Next steps for difference makers. If you decide this morning that, hey, I want to be a difference maker. I want to make a difference. I want to say like Esther, if I perish, I perish. Which, by the way, probably you won't. I can't promise you, but probably you won't. But if you want to be a person that makes a difference, by the way, let me just say that I think if you live long enough, you might. Because I think where our culture is going, where our world is going, it may very well that some of us that are sitting in this room right now may live under tyranny right here in the United States of America. So I don't say that too loosely. It, it may mean your life. But if you're going to say, if I perish, I perish, I just want to do what's right. I just want to make a difference in my world for Christ. I want to make a difference. Here's number one. We reject passivity. That's where the process begins. We reject passivity. What do you say? What's passivity? Passivity is the idea that it's okay to simply meander through life comfortably as a follower of Jesus and do absolutely nothing. If that's you and you're going to be a difference maker, you have to reject the notion that that's okay. You can't just simply meander through life going, ah, okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. It's just all about me and it's all about my comfort. You have to live your life on mission. Number two, we'll never make a difference until we believe that one person can make a difference. You see, that's the problem for many of us. We look at everybody else and go, okay, is everybody else going to do it? Everybody else put your hand up and then I'll put my hand up too and we'll go be Jesus people together. That'd be great. It'd be awesome. Love to do it you got to believe that you can make a difference. That if those guys that are sitting next to you, if they're not going to do it, you got to believe, I, but I can make a difference. One person, me, I can make a difference. you got to believe that. 
If you just believe God's always going to use somebody else, you're going you're to lose out. God's going to find somebody. You've got to believe that one person can make a difference. And then number three, I like this one. We make a difference when we move from the safety of the harbor to the open water where things are really happening. We make a difference when we move from the safety of the harbor to the open water where things are making a difference. Here's a problem for many of us. We love being lodged in the harbor. I'm not much of a boat guy, but I like really looking at cool boats. I used to have a friend that liked boats, and he told me we were going to go sail around down in the Caribbean. I'm going, I kind of like to be in the boat in the harbor in the Caribbean on that boat, but I'm not so sure I want to be out there with you where the waves are rocking and things can happen. I mean, people die out there. And I swim, but not for a long time and not for a long distance. And so I like the safety of the harbor where the boat's there, maybe even the yacht's there. That'd be awesome. There are a lot of Christians in America that are living on yachts in the harbor. It's cool. It's great. It's comfortable. Difference makers don't do that. Difference makers move from the safety of the harbor out into the open water. And guess what happens out in the open water? Storms come up. Boats capsize. Pirates are out there. No, I don't think they're pirates anymore. But that's what happens out there in the open water, right? Things happen like that. But that's where you make a difference when you move from the safety of the harbor to the open water. You don't go anyplace in the harbor. All people do is look at you and go, isn't that a nice boat? You go someplace when you get into the open water. Faith is risk. It's acting based on the character of the one who's trusted. And I believe we can trust God. And so God gives you an ability to encourage someone. Let me tell you that every moment matters and you have to make the most of those moments this week. If he gives you talent to use for his glory and for the benefit of others, you have to make the most of those moments. Let me say to some of you, that involves you getting off the fence right now and getting involved in ministry right here in your church. There are some people that week after week after week are serving back in our children's ministry because some of you say you don't have the gift. Just being honest. Some of you say, I've prayed about it. I think about that and think, so how does that prayer go? Right? God, Sunday is a day of worship, and I give myself to you. And God, I'm just wondering if you would allow me to work with children. And God goes, nope. Uh Uh-uh. I'm really, I'm seriously, I'm not making light of it. It does sound funny, doesn't it? No, no, that would not be my will. You're busy. You need time to come down. Those kids would rile you up. You wouldn't be ready for work the next morning, and, and you just can't handle the stress right now. Let me just say this. Don't pray about stupid things. Can I say that to you? I know some of you won't come back next week because you th- he, he says our prayers are stupid. Well, guess what? Some of your prayers are stupid. Some of my prayers are stupid. Sometimes I pray and I get done praying and I go, right? That's what some of you ought to be doing too. There are some things that if you have the ability, if you have the way, if you have the means, you do not need to pray about them. You need to do them. Thank you, one person. Thank you for affirming that. We ought to all say together what? Amen. Let's be a church that does something. Don't pray about stupid things. There's enough real things to pray about. Don't pray about dumb stuff. You know, some of you are saying, oh, he thinks it's me. Well, hey, the shoes fit, put them on. If the jeans fit, put them on. If they're too big, get a belt. I mean, I don't know. But at some point, 
You have to use that talent for God's glory and for the benefit of others. Every moment matters. When he gives you opportunities to serve others, you have to make the most of those opportunities. When he gives you the opportunity to exhort and challenge other people, you can't sit back and go, what will they think about me? What will they say about me? You have to make those moments count. If God gives you the resources, he gives you resources to manage, let me remind you, he did not give them so that you might amuse yourself and indulge yourself. He gave them to you that you might use them in strategic moments for his glory and for the propagation of the gospel. That's why he gave it to you. And you have to be ready. And you have to seize those moments when they come. Because who knows? You may have been given that talent. You may have been given that personality, that gift of encouragement, those resources for such a time as this. Let me tell you, every single moment matters. It counts. The big idea this morning is very simple. What's your part in God's mission? You got a part. He uses messed up, ordinary people, imperfect people, to do extraordinary things, to bring himself glory and to make sure that everybody hears the good news of the gospel. you got to find your part in that mission. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity that I have to open up your word. God, there may be some that are sitting here this morning and they think to themselves, yeah, easy for him to say, it's easy for him to yell and scream at us, but God, you know the work you do in my heart every time that I'm in the Word, that I'm preparing to teach other people. There's surgery that's done on my heart way before I ever get up here. God, I want to I wanna be a guy that, whose life is marked by understanding that every moment matters because I don't know that I have the next breath. I don't know that I have tomorrow. I don't know that I have next week. I've seen enough people die tragically, suddenly, and so I don't take for granted the next moment. I want to make a difference. I want to do and be what you want me to be. I want to make the most of every moment of every day. I want to look for an opportunity. I want to do something to make my life count. I simply don't want to accumulate things that I'm going to leave behind when they put me in the dirt six feet down. So God, impress this upon our heart, that we have been put here in this place for this moment, for this time. I pray that we will be that kind of a people. We pray these things in Jesus' name.